This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Hello, this is Carl Pillemer. I'm the director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research, and I'd like to welcome you to our next episode in the podcast series, Doing Translational Research. Um, and with me today is Dr. Alyssa Kozlov, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Weill Cornell Medicine in a T32 training uh, postdoctoral program funded by the National Institute on Aging. And this is taking place in the Division of Geriatrics and Palliative Care at Weill Cornell Medicine. Uh, her doctorate is in clinical psychology and aging and developmental psychology from Washington University in St. Louis. And her research focuses broadly on mental health assessment and intervention within palliative care, patient and family knowledge of palliative care, later life family communication, and barriers to palliative care integration and utilization. And she'll be speaking in our center later today, so we're excited to have this opportunity to talk beforehand. So welcome to our podcast series. Thank you. Um, You know, we always like to begin just with getting a sense of what you're current main research interests are. Um, one way to think about this is what's, you know, the biggest question that your research uh, would like to answer, the kind of things you're interested in. Right now, I've been focused primarily on figuring out what kind of mental health care is involved, is, is happening in palliative care. So for folks who don't know, palliative care is holistic care for patients with advanced illness and it's focused, and their families, and it's focused on symptom reduction, and that's symptoms across multiple domains, so physical symptoms, psychological symptoms, spiritual symptoms, and this care is usually provided by a team of professionals, so social workers, MDs, nurses, chaplains, sometimes psychologists, OTs, etc., and we, it's sort of a newer field, and the science is still developing, and there's plenty of research going on, but I really want to focus in on what kinds of psychological care and assessment and interventions are happening within palliative care, and are they effective? Um, so my research right now has been primarily focused on kind of taking the a litmus test of what's already happening and determining if more needs to happen, and so... I recently did a review paper that looked at multi-component palliative care interventions and tried to suss out what was the psychological component of that intervention. And the results of this paper show that we're not doing a great job of documenting what that intervention is, who's providing it, and whether or not it's effective. And so what this signals to me is maybe there is some really good psych interventions happening, but we're not doing a good job of disseminating what those are. And maybe, on the other hand, there are not any good psych interventions happening, in which case we really need to work to develop um, an evidence-based mental health practice for patients with advanced illness. That is so interesting. And actually, for a person like me who um, doesn't know that much about this, I would think that mental health care and psychological care would be an integral part of palliative care. So it's surprising to hear that that's a gap. Well, I think, I think everyone would agree with you. I think everyone says that mental health care is an integral part of palliative care. I think there may be some disagreement on the best delivery mechanisms. 
and what the mental health care should be. So a lot of these review papers say that they're addressing psychological symptoms, and then they say something sort of amorphous, um, like provided psychosocial support as needed. And to me, as a clinical psychologist, I don't really know what psychosocial support is. I know that that's kind of the bread and butter of, I think, a lot of domains of healthcare. I'm not sure you would meet too many social workers or doctors or nurses who are like, I do not provide psychosocial support as needed. But as a, as a clinical psychologist with a strong background in evidence-based psychotherapies, I know that if someone has anxiety, a little bit of hand-holding might be helpful, but it's not going to alle alleviate the symptoms the way that, say, a cognitive behavioral therapy technique will. Um, so I'm, I'm a big proponent of making sure that the psychological interventions within palliative care are based off of the evidence that the psychological sciences have been amassing for the last several decades. And right now that seems to be a pretty big gap. There aren't too many folks out there doing mental health research specifically with patients in a palliative mm. care setting. Uh, is there an issue in terms of the delivery of psychological services around reimbursement for such services with people in palliative care? Is that a barrier? That's a great question. Um, I think reimbursement is always a bit of a barrier. Um, you know, palliative care is can be reimbursed through Medicare and through other insurances, but usually as a part and parcel, is my understanding. I'm not um, a, a policy expert, but there, there definitely are some barriers there, um, which is why the research base really needs to kind of support that reducing psychological symptoms has a cascading effect on the patient's overall health and well-being. Um, we know that mental health care is related to decreased um, utilization of medical services and improved quality of life, and so there's reason to believe that if you alleviate psych symptoms, you're going to reduce the overall costs for a hospitalization, but we need to kind of do the legwork to demonstrate that so that the reimbursement codes can catch up. That's, that's really interesting. And is there an issue also, I assume there's delivery of psychological services both to the patients but also to family members? Ideally. Yeah. It gets tricky. Um, so, and this is different from different healthcares. I was primarily trained at the VA healthcare system, which does a fantastic job of integrating psychological services throughout the entire um, system of care. Um, and so, for example, at the VA, the, the patient's family were, were key parts of the intervention, but it gets tricky because the patient's family members are not patients at the hospital. And so how do you chart for that? You can't, how do you bill for that? These are questions that get really complicated. You know, at the VA, it's kind of an all-inclusive health service, so it's a little less murky. But in the private sector, I'm learning, um, palliative care certainly seeks to alleviate the symptoms of family members, but it gets a little murky about how the best way to do that is when they're not technically the hospital's patient. Right. Um, and when you work with patients, just, just um, based on the research and on your own experience, what are the major psychological issues that if someone's entering into a palliative care program that you usually encounter? Well, we know from disease-specific research that Rates of anxiety and depression are really high in patients with um, advanced cancer, with end-stage renal disease, heart failure, COPD, things like that. So you would definitely should expect some symptoms of anxiety and depression, or at least assess for them. But then you can run into some other things, too. A lot of folks who have histories of trauma or PTSD 
that gets really resurfaced at end of life or, or when folks are hospitalized because they are so dependent on the care of others. Um, really, any mental health issue that you might see throughout the lifespan has a chance of having a reoccurrence or a new occurrence uh, with the diagnosis of an advanced illness. We know that stress begets stress, and it's hard to think of few things that are more stressful than being hospitalized with a serious illness. So, um, And then you couple that with some of the less kind of DSM diagnoses, things like existential concerns and legacy and anticipatory grief, and and it, you get a pretty complicated constellation of mental health symptoms. No, absolutely. And your current research, I know you're in the process of of planning and starting to execute a study. What is that going to be about? I would like to focus on anxiety symptoms in patients who are hospitalized uh, with advanced illness. And I've chosen anxiety. So I'd like to develop um, a technology-enhanced intervention to help with symptoms of anxiety for folks who are in the hospital. And I'm focusing on anxiety because that's the um, mental health issue that kind of gets most treated with medications in the hospital. So, you know, when someone has depression, they might get started on an antidepressant, but that's kind of a longer-acting, long-term medication. But if someone is having anxiety, you can onboard a, a benzodiazepine, and that's going to have an immediate effect. And with older adults especially, onboarding uh, an anxiolytic like that has issues of polypharmacy and fall risk and delirium. So... Um, I think anxiety is a pretty good symptom to target with non-pharmacological behavioral interventions. And I'm interested in adding in the tech component because I want to work within the current system of care we've built. And it's not that I think folks are neglecting psychological issues because they're, you know, cruel people. I think that there's so many competing demands of the palliative care team that I want to make sure if we develop an intervention that it's actually... Um, implementable and disseminable. And so with anxiety, a lot of, a lot of the treatment is skills-based things like learn how to uh, use diaphragmatic breathing to reduce your heart rate and mindfulness meditation and progressive muscle relaxation. And these are things that could be taught pretty easily and effectively with um, like a mobile application. And so that will reduce the amount of face time that the palliative care provider needs to have with the patient. So I, I, it seems like it should fit into the existing framework, but we'll see. Absolutely. That sounds really promising. Thank you. Well, let me turn to some questions. We like to engage in these podcasts around what it's like for someone doing research in a practice setting or how researchers and practitioners work together. Now, you happen to be both a researcher and a practitioner, so you have also another perspective. And, and it sounds like you've done research... Uh, in hospital settings and medical settings. And we're curious what that experience has been like for you, if there are any challenges you find in work in trying to do, say, things like a randomized controlled experiment on a psychosocial issue in a busy clinical setting, what you kind of need, what people need to do to make those experiences work well. Well, this is sort of a new terrain for me. So my hospital-based research has primarily in the past been in the form of chart reviews, um, so no real patient interaction and, and none of the systems barriers that you would expect. So this will be a learning curve for me, too. From what I understand, it's fairly dependent on how receptive your institution is to research. I feel really fortunate to be at Weill Cornell Medicine because they are 
looking for research opportunities. So my hope is that uh, folks will be excited about this possibility. And I think the the key thing to keep in mind when you're pitching uh, administration and, and healthcare teams is how will this research help them? How will it make their lives easier and not harder? And so when I start to get closer to launching this pilot study, I want the palliative care team to be involved from day one um, because it's no good to develop something that the team themselves wouldn't use and doesn't find helpful. Um, I think you'll get the most buy-in if, if the people who it affects the most understand and see the value in what you're trying to do. Perhaps. I, I, I don't know whether you've seen this or just anticipating it, but I also wonder about the issue of getting busy you know, um, clinicians to refer people, of also trying to recruit patients who are obviously under stress for a lot of different reasons. Right. I wonder what we know about making that work well. I presume you're going to find out, but maybe you've seen it as well. I don't. Yeah. You know. Oh, I think that my experience having worked on palliative care teams in the past will serve me well because I can go in with some knowledge of how it might work. Um, I've also shadowed the current palliative care team that I'd be working with, and I, I know about their team meetings in the morning. I know how they're assessing for things, and I know how they're currently handling folks with uh, symptoms of anxiety. And so I think what's probably likely is that it will have to be an adjunctive service that doesn't affect them. Um, for example, I will deliver the intervention mm-hmm. rather than training someone on the team to do it because they're inundated right now. Um, and I want to make sure that this fits into their clinical practice and doesn't detract from what they're already doing because we don't know if it's going to work. So I can't ask them to take time away from what they're currently doing until we know that this is actually a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah, I think that's important. And I, I found the same thing in doing projects jointly with people in clinical medicine. So there's someone who's really part of the team who's actually engaged in it is really helpful. Yeah. So you aren't just an outsider coming in. But we found all kinds of things, though, with doing research in in um, a medical environment from provider schedules to their pagers going off to, uh, you know, f- our routines and schedules being disrupted. It does take a little getting used to, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're doing a rigorous research design, I think. Right. I, I think in some ways, I'm my office is four doors down from the palliative care team's office. I think when I start to chat with them about this project, I'm not some outsider. I mean, I'm not on their team, but I'm a familiar face and they know my research and I've spoken with them plenty of times. And so I think it's probably less invasive because I'm part of the fabric of their office environment if I were an outside researcher making this proposal to them, I could see that being pretty disruptive. And also, I can imagine that this would be very appealing to anybody in palliative care. I mean, anxious patients are are more challenging. Right. And so if, if this actually works, if there's another way to reduce anxiety that's non-pharmacological. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but let me ask, if you think, you know, in general about this whole area in which you're doing research. Are there some things in particular that you would like the general public to understand? So, uh, you know, a couple of things that might be important to, quote, ordinary citizens, unquote, if there is such a thing as an ordinary citizen. Definitely. I think one of the biggest things with palliative care in general is that there's a misunderstanding of what palliative care is compared to hospice care. And I think that's a huge barrier to palliative care. So, 
hospice care is for folks with advanced illness who are in the last six months of life and who are no longer pursuing curative treatments. Palliative care, on the other hand, is for any uh, stage within the illness trajectory, and ideally it's early. So in an ideal world, palliative care gets onboarded the day someone gets diagnosed with with a serious or life-limiting illness. And the point of palliative care is to help with the symptoms of the illness and its treatment. And so palliative care does not necessitate folks uh, quitting their curative treatments. And I think that's key to know um, that if you're having a tough time with your serious illness, if you're full of symptoms and your treatments, for example, chemotherapy or or dialysis are, are making you feel worse, there's a team of medical professionals who are specialized in in making you feel better um and it's not a a scary service but i think it gets a bad rap because people think it's um only for people who are uh, no longer pursuing curative treatments and then the other side of it is that mental health symptoms are not normal right they're you know it's hard to kind of wrap your head around the idea that if you have a serious illness depression is not expected. Um, You know, there's definitely some negative affect that I think goes along with having a a life-threatening illness, but there's also a point at which it crosses a threshold and it warrants treatment. And so there's help available if you're having a hard time getting through the day, if your anxiety is interfering with your treatments, there are non-pharmacological and pharmacological ways to improve your quality of life. So just because folks have a serious illness or loved ones have serious illness does not mean that there are certain expected mental health states that go along with it. Well, that's both a uh, useful but also hopeful piece so that we can actually do something that might improve quality of life for people in that situation. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with Dr. Alyssa Kozloff uh, around her research on palliative care and mental health. And uh, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. And we look forward to having every, uh, everyone else uh, join us on the next episode of Doing Translational Research. For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.